everybody get ready jam-packed show today oh a lot of stuff happened since the last time we were on air and we are going to cover all of it so prepare yourself um i'm going to lead with what's call it because the news broke uh late last night and i think it's super important it has to do with the North Korea summit. So we're going to cover that first. I know that there's a lot of other sexy stories that people want to talk about, want me to talk about. We'll get to those. We'll get to the Michael Cohen in a little bit. Um, I will give you some coverage of the Bernie Sanders town hall, which happened a few nights ago. Um, So, yeah, there's, uh, there's all that stuff. So everything you're expecting to be covered will be covered. Um, but, yeah, i got to start with uh, Trump-Kim Summit because, unfortunately, this isn't getting nearly as much coverage as it deserves. And the news is not great. Um, but, yeah, on this show, we're not going to use that for cheap partisan points. We're going to talk about what we hope would actually happen moving forward. So, anyway... Um, without further ado, let's get started. Let's dive in. So I have uh, a little bit of breaking news. Um, and I I say breaking, but really this came out uh, late last night. Uh, the Trump-Kim summit was underway. It was happening in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, the idea of these talks, very straightforward, very simple, is that, okay, we want to have denuclearization of North Korea, and in response to that, the United States is supposed to lift crippling sanctions and get on a more uh, neutral footing towards North Korea. 
Um, now, also, of course, a, a larger goal would be to end the Korean War, which is still technically happening and declared. It's been going on for decades. Um, so this is, I mean, even though there's a lot of other sexy stories to get to, um, and like I said in the intro to the show, we will get to them, fear not. I think this is probably the most important story because so many lives um, are impacted by this. So many Koreans are impacted by this. And we have an opportunity for peace here, and we should do anything and everything to get to the point where we achieve it. Um, so the talks broke down. Now, there's going to be a lot of, you know, I would call them partisan hacks people who would, like, celebrate this notion just because they want to do, like, a gotcha of Donald Trump. Um, I'm not in that crowd. I care about the policy objectives and the goals. I want there to be peace. So I, I don't – there's no cheap partisan points that I'm going to make here. I hope that these talks in the long run do succeed, but they did break down. Now, what was the impasse? Well, this is interesting. Um, you know, everything appeared to be go, going along just fine. You know, Donald Trump and, and Kim – we're getting along. Uh, and then apparently the breakdown is North Korea was expecting full sanctions relief in, in response uh, for partial denuclearization. So that was, that was the give and the take. They want full sanctions relief, and they'll do partial denuclearization. Now, of the articles that I was reading, I didn't, nobody made it crystal clear, and that kind of annoyed me because this detail is absolutely necessary. But... What likely is the case, because this was the case in Iran, too, is that when they mean uh, partial denuclearization, what they're saying is, yes, no nuclear weapons, but nuclear power for power for our power grid or nuclear power for research, which is allowed under international law. So my guess is this, and this is all speculation, but, uh, you know, there's good reason to believe what I'm about to tell you. My guess is this. Trump does seem dead set on getting some sort of peace agreement with North Korea. He, he set his mind to it, seemingly. So he can say, aha, got you, Obama. You weren't able to get this. I was able to get this. So my guess is Trump is actually totally fine with, okay, you want to do no nuclear weapons, and in response for that, you get sanctions relief. But I'm guessing John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and the neocons basically said, no deal. And they told Trump, You're, you cannot make this deal. And, you know, their whole thing is you get no sanctions relief and you give up everything, not just – you don't just do partial denuclearization. You get rid of any potential nuclear weapons and then also any potential nuclear power for your power grid. And so you get rid of everything, and then after you get rid of everything, um, we do maybe partial sanctions relief. So, in other words, neocons in typical neocon fashion, because they don't believe in peace – they don't want peace. They said, you give us everything, and we give you not that much. But every single one of our demands, you will meet, and then maybe we'll be kind and give you, you know, a little something in return, but not everything. So you give us everything, we'll give you maybe 25%. <laughs> like, that's, that's my suspicion, is that Bolton and Pompeo and every neocon in the administration is actively undermining this. And, you know, again, Donald Trump, admittedly, for all the wrong reasons, it's not like he has a principled stance for peace. You know, look at what he's doing in other places around the world. Look what they're doing in Venezuela right now. 
this is one rare instance where uh, I think the the core of it is to just do you know do a gotcha to Obama like the the core philosophy at work here is anti-Obamaism, and Obama wasn't able to get a long-term deal with North Korea. So it looks like Trump is just trying to get that so he can rub it in everybody's face, like, oh, see, tremendous, I've gotten peace. But honestly, I don't care about the motivation. I just care that this gets done. So I, I really believe that Trump would take that deal, the deal of, okay, partial denuclearization, no uh, weapons, but full sanctions relief in response. I think Trump would take that deal. Um, and the neocons are likely blocking it. Now, this gets to the bigger question of, should we take that deal? <laughs> My answer is, fuck yes, we should take that deal. Absolutely, we should take that deal. You know, listen, uh, I've, I talk about this every time we bring up North Korea on the show, I try to talk about this. Is North Korea a, a terrible, dictatorial, authoritarian regime where they do, you know, terrible repression against their own people? And they literally have labor camps. Like, so is this a horrendous regime with no political freedoms? Yes, 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 yes. Are they a threat to anybody else in the world? No. Certainly not a threat to the United States of America. And our best chance to make them, the only people who they might be some threat to, you could say, you know, um, South Korea and Japan, but working on this peace deal and getting it done would make it so that there's no threat to anybody anywhere. But they're certainly not a threat to us. There's no way they're a threat to us. So would I take the deal of, okay, you're making gestures for peace, you know, get rid of some weapons, do a whole dog and pony show of, oh, look, all these international um, groups can come in and dismantle our weapon system at this plant or whatever. If they're giving you that much, and in response it's just sanctions relief, of course I take that deal. That's a no-brainer. Because if I don't think they're a threat to us in the first place, and if I really think that we are the offensive threat, because we are, that's what all of recent history shows, look what we did to Iraq, look what we did to Libya, look what we're doing to Syria, look at what we're about to do to Venezuela. So a lot of people struggle on that point that, wait a second, maybe we are the offensive threat. But that's the truth. We're the offensive threat. So any step to de-escalate and to move us towards peace, I accept it. Even if it's just a fucking, you know, dog and pony show and some gestures towards peace, 100% accept it. Because I don't think they're the threat. I think we are the threat. So, okay, give us a gesture towards peace, and then we'll do um, sanctions relief. So would I take that deal? Okay, you get to come in. And by the way, I, I, think, I genuinely think that when he says partial denuclearization, what he means is, yeah, zero nuclear weapons, but we just have, we remain the ability to have nuclear power for our power grid, and the level you have to enrich uranium for power for your power grid is so much lower that the breakaway time, as they call it, to make a nuclear weapon, we know it was going to happen before, you know, before they move in that direction. We would know, oh, now they broke away and they're trying to make a nuclear weapon. So take the deal. And again, I think Bolton and I think um, Pompeo are cock-blocking the deal, and that's terrible. That's terrible. I would absolutely take the deal. Partial denuclearization, full sanctions relief, totally fine. By the way, the hilarious aspect of this, and you have to call out Trump's hypocrisy on this front because it's maddening, is that that's what the Iran nuclear agreement was. Every, what I just described, that's what the Iran nuclear agreement was. Partial denuclearization in the sense that they get no nuclear weapons at all, and the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, gets to regulate them like crazy and gets to 
be up their ass 24-7. And then in return for that, we just lift sanctions. So the deal that he, I think Trump is okay with in terms of North Korea is pretty much the same deal that we had for Iran. But he blew up the Iran deal, and he's pursuing a deal with North Korea, which, again, tells you the core of this. There is no core here. But to the extent there is one, it appears to just be anti-Obamaism. Obama had this Iran peace deal. I'm going to pretend like it was a terrible deal, and it's not. It's a wonderful deal. Um, I'm going to pretend like it was a terrible deal and pull out of it and march towards war with Iran. Again, Bolton Pompeo pulling the strings behind the scenes. And then on North Korea, I'll try to craft a deal that's similar to the Iran deal. So there's no, listen, there's no logical consistency. I don't want to give Trump too much credit. All I'm telling you guys is my ultimate position, and I don't care how we get there, is peace. And the fact that we were right at that doorstep and then we turned away, that's upsetting. Now, I think there will be meetings in the future, and I think there's still hope for this. But honestly, I think the hope relies on Trump really telling his advisors to fuck off. And listen, uh, I'm afraid that that's not going to happen because look at what happened with Syria. Trump tweeted, oh, we're getting out of there, and then we didn't get out of there. Then John Bolton came out a, not even a week later. I was like, oh, yeah, we didn't really mean that. Uh, we didn't say fast. We didn't say we're getting out fast. And then Trump reiterated that. So, like, Trump has these fucking brain farts and where he stumbles on the right position every now and then. Like, let's get out of Syria. Let's get out of Afghanistan. And then when it comes to following through, he doesn't do it. So, you know, the hopes are low for Trump to really say to all the neocons in his administration, fuck off, we're going to go in this direction, so shut the fuck up. And even if he does say it, will he follow through? I don't know, and it, I would guess not, but I hope that we make this deal. This deal is super important. Um, peace is always preferable. By the way, that doesn't mean you become, you know, buddy-buddy with this horrendous regime. It means you're neutral towards it. I'm a big fan of neutrality on the world stage in regards to other governments. I don't love, we're so buddy-buddy with Saudi Arabia, which is a horrible regime. We're buddy-buddy with Israel, which is a horrible regime. We back 73% of the world's dictatorships, which is terrible. Now, my position is not, I hate Saudi Arabia, I hate Israel, therefore let's like, go to war with them. No. My stance is, they're really terrible. We have this unholy alliance. Let's be neutral. Let's like, kind of, we can still, with whatever country you want to talk about, whatever human rights abuses they've committed, there could still be some degree of communication and trade and all that stuff, but definitely not like buddy-buddy, hold hands, frolic in the meadow, and definitely not standoffish, let's go to war. And I want to get on a more neutral footing with North Korea because, again, I think we're the threat to them. And this would be wonderful for the region and for Koreans. And we're, this is a rare opportunity, guys, and I hope that we take it. But it looks like the neocons might be destroying it at the last minute, and nobody should support that. So don't, don't try to score cheap partisan points and say, oh, what happened to President Deals? Because we should all be encouraging Trump to do this kind of stuff. The same approach... And here's a question. If reporters were good at their job, here's a question they could ask Trump. Why is it you're looking for a potential peace deal with North Korea, but you're not with Iran, you're not with Venezuela, you're not with the eight different countries that we're bombing? You know, hey, maybe you should have more consistency on your foreign policy approach and actually be non-interventionist and work towards peace. If reporters were good, they would ask that question. But instead, what are reporters doing? What's the U.S. media doing? Well, we covered it in the last show like Tap Jaker, who was resisting from the right and saying, uh, the CIA says uh, Kim Jong-un is still a nuclear, nuclear threat. Do you think they're a nuclear threat still or no? So in other words, everything is framed from a more hawkish, and that's the problem is that 
the resistance is, and you can see this all throughout media, is Trump's an idiot for meeting with a guy who's such a terrible guy and, you know, how dare he shake hands with such an evil monster. Okay, but that's the same dumb bullshit that Fox News and Hillary Clinton said when Obama said, I want to talk to Iran without preconditions. And then he did. That's not a good stance. That's a dumb fucking position. You should be in favor of talking. That's the, that's the best possible thing you could do when it comes to world affairs. So, media sucks. The neocons suck. Uh, we took a step back here, but I hope that we can, at some point, get a peace deal because it would be wonderful. Okay, next. Actually, hold on real quick. I'm sick, and I got to spray some of the chloroseptic in my throat. So give me one second. I'll put on the uh, lovely music for you. But, uh, yeah, I'm a little sick today, so I might have to pause a few times to do the spray and stuff and get some tissues. Anyway, hold on. I'll be right back, bitch. I'm back, fuckers. Oh, that throat numbing spray is awesome. I can't wait for it to give me cancer, though, in 50 years. <laughs> Actually, 50 might be stretching it. 30? Something like that? Goddamn, that throat numbing spray. Wow. Good stuff. You know, I hate to throw my nieces, my my niece and nephews under the bus, but relatively certain that I'm sick again because of them. 
<laughs> whenever I play, whenever I play the role of good uncle, I always uh, end up sick. All right, anywho, let's go, Bernie Sanders. That's the next topic. We're gonna go uh, hop in the time machine, go back a couple days here to the town hall. I got some videos for you. Um, all right, let's go to the smear question. Okay. So Bernie Sanders was given a, a smear question during his town hall. Actually, he was given a couple smear questions. Um, so I want to watch this here, and then when we come back, I'm going to give you an amazing fact, which really explains exactly how and why this is a smear question. Because you might listen to it and go, I don't know, I don't really think that's a smear question. But when you hear the backstory, you're going to go, oh, okay, yeah, this appears to be on purpose. So take a look, and then we'll discuss. As we saw in the 2018 midterms, the Democratic Party has become more female, more racially diverse, and younger in age. How can a voter like me feel confident in your ability to represent the party, especially given that your response to sexual harassment allegations during your campaign is that you were, quote, a little bit busy running around the country trying to make the case to be elected as president? Well, I think that quote was a little bit out of context. But let me ask you a question. I am enormously proud of the fact that we have the most diverse, progressive freshman class in the history of the United States Congress. And you know what I did in 2016 and in 2018? I ran all over this country to try to make that happen. All right. So when you talk about the political revolution, you're talking about two things. Number one are the ideas that we are fighting for, an economy that works for all, not just the 1%. But the second point that I have made over and over again is we're not going to be able to implement a progressive agenda unless millions more people get involved in the political process. So I am delighted. I am delighted. We started an organization called Our Revolution. I think Nina Turner is here. You know what the purpose of Our Revolution was about? It's precisely to bring young people into the political process. And I think we're making some real progress. But what, are you gonna, what are you going to do, Senator, to make sure that the allegations that occurred against your campaign Good couple of years ago uh, are not repeated. What are you personally going to do to make well, sure that doesn't what, happen again? Let me tell you what we have done and what we are doing. I was very upset to learn what I learned. Uh, when I ran for re-election in Vermont in 2018, we instituted, I think, maybe the strongest protocols against sexual harassment, and that will be the protocols we bring into the 2020 presidential election. Every employee of mine in this campaign will get significant amounts of training, to understand what sexual harassment is about. Anybody who feels harassed will have an independent uh, entity to speak to outside of the campaign, and we have hired some of the best people in the country to help us on this issue. We take this issue very, very seriously. How, how has it affected you personally knowing what happened? It was very painful, very painful, and it will not happen again. All right, so first of all, I mean, the point that needs to – just be up front here and out of the way. New York Times wrote an article saying, oh, my God, sexual harassment of Bernie Sanders' campaign, sexual harassment of Bernie Sanders' campaign, yada, yada. If you read just the headline, you would think Bernie Sanders himself did the sexual harassment. If you read the first three or four paragraphs, you'd think, oh, my God, this was an epidemic, and they were callous, they didn't care. It was only deep in the article that they mentioned, oh, by the way, there's zero evidence Bernie Sanders was even told about this uh, at all and knew it was happening. 
So, in other words, you have this giant campaign where all these things are going on. You are running around the country giving speeches, trying to raise awareness for Medicare for All and, and uh, living wage and free college and ending the wars and getting elected. And then, so you don't know what's happening, and then you're told at the end of it, oh, by the way, there was sexual harassment happening, and we're going we're gonna to say you're responsible for it. So, you know, listen, he's a better guy than I am because my response would have actually been very angry. I would have been like, well... I wasn't told, and I didn't know, so how am I supposed to stop it or do anything about it? Like, think about it, guys. Even in theory, there's nothing he could have done because he wasn't even told that it was happening. So what do you want want me to do, apologize when there's literally nothing I could have ever done? And I'm not even, I'm literally not responsible for it because I didn't know, and I wasn't told. So what am I supposed to have, fucking ESP and figure out what's happening? and then fight back against it, and that's how you know it's a smear. He literally has zero responsibility for this. But they're presenting it as if he does have responsibility for it, it's a problem, and probably most perniciously, it's a problem specifically for his campaign. So listen, there was an article, um, I think it was written by uh, journalist Owen Higgins, and it was a while back, and it was like during the 2016 campaign. And in that article... It, it was a, about sexual harassment in various campaigns, and they discussed, I think, Hillary Clinton campaign, Bernie Sanders campaign, and others. And that article, to my knowledge, was not like uniquely blaming Bernie or even trying to bury the fact that they didn't know about it, you know? And it was very upfront saying, hey, sexual harassment on campaigns is a problem. Maybe there should be some broad protocols. But the article, fast forward, and the article in the New York Times when it came out, hey, Bernie Sanders is probably going to run for president again, the article was, didn't mention any of the other campaigns and how there was sexual harassment in those campaigns too, tried to make it seem like it was a unique problem to Bernie, and tried to bury the fact that he didn't even know about it. So this is a smear effort. Now, again, Bernie's a better man than I am because basically he treats this as if it's like, oh, no, just a, you know, it's not like the people who wrote that went into it trying to take down Bernie. They went into that just being objective observers and said, oh, there's this giant problem and let's address it and let's write about it. Well, that's either naive or he's playing the game to try to beat them at their own game because that's why he's, you know, uh, listen, I'm happy he set up those protocols, but I just would hope that when he set up those protocols, he's crystal clear. Like just so everybody knows, I had no idea this was happening. I wasn't told it was happening. So there was nothing I could have done about it. But yes, I implemented these protocols now because these are super important and this won't happen again or whatever. But he doesn't, like, he doesn't lead with, I didn't, I did nothing wrong. He kind of leads with, yes, serious problem. Let me validate your smear. And now I'm going to go on to, to say, I, this is what we're doing, X, Y, and Z. So, but again, that's how you know it's a smear question because the people who are presenting it, they know that this wasn't unique to Bernie Sanders' campaign, and they know that he didn't know about it. So why would you bring it up? They bring it up because they want to use it to try to tank him. And guys, listen, don't be naive about this. Don't be like, you know, because I, I can already see it now, people saying, oh, my God, Kyle's so callous to concerns like this and yada, yada. I'm calling out standard. I'm calling out the irrationality. I'm calling out how this is being weaponized, because that's what it is. It's being weaponized. Okay, so that's the first point. Now, the second point is this. 
look at the beginning of that question. And if you didn't catch it well enough, go back and listen again, because it is, it's really telling. Look at the assumption embedded in the point. The point was, hey, the Democratic Party is more female and more racially diverse, so basically why should we trust you? So the assumption is, the implication is, well, obviously, you know, women and people of color, obviously, they're only going to vote based on tribalistic characteristics, so why should they trust you, an old white man? That assumption is kind of bigoted. Like what? Black people and people of color can't say, hey, that guy represents the policies, I want more? Of course they can. But she doesn't even, like, there's no wiggle room for that interpretation, it's just, oh, this party's more female and more racially diverse. So, therefore, obviously not you, right? That's insane. So, in other words, you're saying, I literally want people to put identity above policy and just go, oh, simply because of your demographics, you're ruled out, even though Bernie's policies objectively are the best out of all the candidates for those communities mentioned. So, but listen, I, and Bernie really, I don't know if he pointed this out, he may have. The reaction that makes the most sense is, but hold on, when you look at the polls, guess who women and people of color prefer more than any other candidate? Guess who has the highest favorability numbers among those communities compared to every other candidate? He does. Bernie does. So it's a weird thing to say like, oh, since the party's more female and racially diverse, why would they go with you? Well, because the polls show women and people of color prefer. <laughs> so you're saying, like, let's erase what women and people of color want because let's think about what women and people of color would want. But they're telling you they want Bernie. So what do you mean? It's just so, it's so condescending. And that's one of the things about modern-day identity politics, which is weaponized for cynical purposes, that, that it just drives me crazy, is that so disingenuous and so condescending, this idea that, like, well, obviously if you're a woman or a person of color, not Bernie, right? And then also the idea of, like, they're harping away, okay, but what about the minorities? What about the minorities? What about the minorities? If you want to play that game, let's flip it back on you. Bernie Sanders is Jewish. So are you anti-Semitic because you're not giving him a fair shot and you're ruling him out? I, I mean, it's – I don't want to play that game either, by the way. I'm just saying that that's a point that could be made if we were going to play that same cynical game. Um, but then here's the, the final point, the most important point. That was not an organic question. That woman, and by the way, many other people who asked these questions during the town hall, Democratic Party operatives. They were plants. I'm not kidding. People did some research when they, like, certain questions were like, huh, nobody would ask that question. What are you doing? And then people did some research, and they found out, oh, shit, these are literally Democratic Party operatives who were sent in there, and they were given titles like, you know, a former biology professor and shit, and they didn't disclose the ties to the Democratic Party. And then after the fact, this blew up on Twitter and blew up online, and CNN was forced to apologize for not saying, hey, this is really what this person does. So, guys, they're at it again, man. They're at it again. And if you think for a split second that they evolved in their tactics, They didn't evolve in their tactics at all. If anything, their tactics got worse and more desperate because they know he's the front runner. Look at Chris Saliza and his bullshit, you know, uh, recent segments. Why Bernie's not going to make it in 2020? (laughs) And he doesn't even make a point. He just uses the stale uh, talking points 
that everybody was using all along, and the video's got a fucking 95% dislike rate, they're never going to learn. But thankfully now, we're here to call them out, and you know where to go to, to see them get called out. But, I mean, it, this is, a lot of what they did here was disgusting, and it was effectively lying to the audience. But you know what? Even given all that with the deck stacked against Bernie, I think my original prediction is going to come true. He's going to trump the Democratic primary, which means the Republican establishment did not want Trump. First they said Jeb Bush. Then they said, okay, we'll move on to Marco Rubio. Then they said, all right, fine, even Ted Cruz will take over Trump. And then eventually they just didn't have a choice because Trump destroyed everybody in the primary. That's what's going to happen with the Democratic primary, guys. We're going to see the same thing unfold. They're going to go, oh, my God, um, you know, whatever. Let's go for Kamala Harris. Oh, shit, Kamala uh, flakes out, doesn't make it. All right, well, about Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, let's go with Beto on my stork. He's probably, he's a good one. Oh, fuck, he flamed out, too. He's not going to make it. And they'll go down the line, man, and eventually they'll be like, oh, shit, there's nobody left, and Bernie won. And we're also at the point where the arguments against Bernie are just ringing so hollow and only helping him. Like Politico did a hit piece recently where they had former Hillary Clinton operatives telling Politico, Bernie's a hypocrite on climate change because he took some private flights. But hold on, he took those private flights to campaign for Hillary Clinton to try to get her elected because he knew she was a weak candidate and he didn't want to see Donald Trump become president. So he took private flights to help you, and instead of being thankful that the most popular politician in the country tried to help you when she's massively unpopular, instead of doing that, they use it against him. And they say, ah, Bernie Sanders took private flights. Hypocrisy much on climate change? No, not hypocrisy on climate change. That's you. That's a top-down policy that needs to be implemented in order to make a change. It's 100 corporations that are responsible for over 70% of the carbon emissions. So what do you mean? No, there, there's no individual fixes to climate change. That's not hypocrisy. You didn't get them. In the same way, if you drive a car, you're not a hypocrite on climate change. Are you fucking kidding me? But that's what they came up with. And then they're quoting them. All of them are quoting them and trying to shiv them in the article. They're all talking about Bernie and, ugh, I can't believe he would do such a thing. But that article was released, and the response was universally mocking that article. So in other words, they're trying to shiv Bernie. They're trying to destroy him. But all their arguments are so shitty, those, they only help Bernie because then you get to a point where everybody goes, oh, well, they're trying to fucking destroy this guy, and he's only fighting for policies that will help us. Now we're going to rally to his defense. So keep going, guys. Keep going. Because the more you do this, the more it gets exposed, the more people rally around Bernie, the more likely it is he's going to win. So you're, they're going to shoot themselves in the foot, by all means. I'm reminded of uh, all those ads that other Republicans ran against Trump where they were like, ah, here's a compilation of him cursing. How crass. People's response was, okay, I think I like him more now. <laughs> he's more relatable because he's using curse words and doesn't give a shit. So go ahead, keep trying, but you're going to keep shooting yourself in the foot because you guys don't know anything about politics. You don't know what you're doing. You don't realize you're a house of cards and nobody likes you, and people love this guy because he actually wants to fight for policies that will help everybody, uh, everyday people. So anyway, there's the smear question. It was probably the worst question of the night. The whole point was to smear him and shiv him and take him down, but um, thankfully I think he still did a wonderful job in the town hall. All right, next. 
Let's talk about Bernie's answer on Venezuela. So Bernie Sanders was asked about Venezuela in his town hall on CNN. Um, Now, I had given him a hard time for some of the things he said about Venezuela previously. Let's see if he did any course correction and if his answer is sufficient here. Take a look. Good evening. In light of the recent events in Venezuela, you came out against U.S. intervention, a contentious stance as many in Venezuela are currently suffering at the hands of Maduro through starvation and violence, and it is clear that he will not let humanitarian aid in. Under these circumstances and moving forward, do you have a clear position on U.S. intervention overseas, both economically and militarily, for nations that are under the regimes of these oppressive dictators? Thank you. Good question. There are a lot of awful things happening in the world. And what's going on in Venezuela is terrible. The economy is a disaster. People are living in hunger and in fear. Uh, I strongly believe there has to be an international humanitarian effort to improve lives for the people. I think the evidence is pretty clear that the last election in Venezuela was not a free and fair election. And under international supervision, I want to see a free and fair election. But to answer your question, let me say this. I'm old enough to remember the war in Vietnam. And I was as active as I could trying to keep the United States from going to war in Iraq. I was in the Congress at that point. And I am very fearful of the United States continuing to do what it has done in the past, as you know, or may know. The United States overthrew a democratically elected government in Chile and in Brazil and in Guatemala and in other countries around the world. So as someone who fervently believes in human rights and democracy, we have got to do everything that we can. But I think sometimes you have unintended consequences when a powerful nation goes in and tells people uh, who their government will be. So my view is that whether it is Saudi Arabia which is a despotic regime, or whether it is Venezuela, I think we've got to do everything that we can to create a democratic climate. But I do not believe in U.S. military intervention in those countries. Why have you, Senator, why have you stopped short of calling Maduro or Venezuela a dictator? Well, he, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that the last election was undemocratic, uh, but there are still democratic operations taking place in that country. The point is, what I am calling for right now is uh, internationally supervised free elections. And I do find it interesting that Trump is very concerned about what goes on in Venezuela, but what about the last election that took place in Saudi Arabia? Oh, there wasn't any election in Saudi Arabia. Oh, women are treated as third-class citizens. So I find it interesting that Trump is kind of selective as to where he is concerned about democracy. My record is to be concerned about democracy all over the world. So we've got to do everything we can. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the people of Venezuela who determine the future of their country, not the United States of America. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, There were a couple tweets from Bernie that were concerning to me because 
they were a little too much buying into U.S. propaganda. Okay, my phrasing there was awkward, but you get the point. Like, the first time he mentioned Venezuela recently was a long tweet storm about how Maduro is evil, Maduro is terrible, Maduro uh, is horrendous. And then at the end, he was like, okay, but no military intervention. Okay, I agree with you on the main point, but I really disagreed with where he put the onus in the tweet storm. The onus was like, no, seriously, every negative thing ever said about this guy is correct. And I'm going to stress that point endlessly. But then at the very end, I'm going to throw the curveball at you and say, but no intervention. Well, I, there are some people on the left who say you can't say a bad word about Maduro. I don't agree with that at all. Um, but what I do believe is you have to put the onus on no intervention. Because people are only making the point about how terrible Maduro is in service of manufacturing consent to do regime change. So I, I'm, I have no problem bringing up how bad he is because facts are facts, and I think he is bad. Um, but at the same time, in 2002 in Iraq, you could have done a, you know, you could have spoken about how evil Saddam is endlessly. But ultimately, you're only serving the logic of regime change. So maybe you could bring up the fact that he's bad, but really stress the point, put the onus on the point that, no, we should not be getting involved. So I didn't like where he put his focus in his first tweet storm. And then in his second tweet on Venezuela, which we covered on the show, I was really disappointed in that because he really fell for a propaganda trick. And the propaganda trick is we have John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, and Elliot Abrams, whose job literally in the Cold War was to basically do regime change. He used to send these fake aid convoys, and then when the country didn't accept them, you go, how dare you not accept our aid? Meanwhile, the aid was weapons that they were trying to give to right-wing militias to topple democratically elected governments. So now the same guy who did fake aid is in power, and then immediately we get some aid at the Venezuelan border on a bridge that was never in use? No, the reality is they're using it as fake aid. It's a PR stunt. Even the international community said, number one, don't do this. This is a PR stunt. Number two, they're accepting aid. They're accepting it from us, the international community. They know it's in bad faith from you, and it's a PR stunt, so that's why they're not accepting it from you. But Bernie bought into the propaganda trick and said, oh, how dare they not accept aid? They are accepting aid. And the guy who's sending the aid from the U.S. was known for sending weapons and pretending it was aid. So it's, he's got to know better than that because he's Bernie Sanders, and he's the best senator we have in the country and it's, a, it's kind of amazing that on issues of um, domestic policy and economic policy, he's pretty much exactly where I think he should be. But on foreign policy, he's not fully where he should be. There's still like a, a lot of hedging on the non-interventionism. Now, having said all that, his answer here I don't think was nearly as subpar as his tweets um, because he did stress in his answer here Let's not get involved. Let's not get involved. Let's not get involved. Let's not get involved. Now, I know, again, some people I know are going to say, no, what he said here wasn't enough. Okay, I could kind of see that perspective, but he put the stress on the point we want him to stress, which is don't get involved. Um, one of the arguments to the left of my position on this is, oh, my God, he hasn't, even speci- he hasn't specifically brought up CIA intervention. Like he's against CIA intervention. He's saying he's against military intervention, but he's not saying he's against CIA intervention. I think you're reading too, too much between the lines there. Because even though he didn't bring it up here, 
there has been examples of Bernie in debates, even in 2016 against Hillary, where he doesn't just bring up, you know, the examples of military intervention. He brings up Iran, which was CIA intervention, which toppled a democratically elected um, leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, and put in the Shah, a dictator. So he has spoken against CIA intervention. And I think when Bernie says he doesn't want military intervention, he's using that as a broad thing for just intervention. Um, so he did fall for the PR aid stunt in his tweets, but here he really put the stress on the let's not get involved. And I think he's totally right about that. And so I'm going to I'm going to take his answer because I think on the overarching point, he got it. Despite missing maybe on some of the particulars on the overarching point, he got it. Um, so. He says. What, uh, the question was, do you have a plan for nations that are under the boot of repressive dictators. Now, uh, by the way, I don't know if this was one of the questioners who was a, a Democratic Party aide or Democratic Party worker, but a lot of them were. They're consultants, they're strategists, they're in the Democratic Party, and they, CNN literally planted these people in the crowd and pretended like they were just regular folks. They're not, and they didn't disclose it, which is insane. But look at the framing of the question. Do you have a plan for nations that are under the boot of repressive dictators? You know, my answer to that, as you guys, I'm sure, already know, is the U.S. supports 73% of the world's dictators. So do I have a plan for um, fighting back against those dictators? Yes. Step one is cut off all arms to those dictators. So notice, like, when the way they frame, the, the implication of that question is, oh, my God, aren't our official state enemies terrible, and aren't they bad dictators? When, again, the reaction should be, you got to, just like Missy Elliott said, flip it and reverse it, because we back 73% of the world's dictators. So if you're so concerned about dictators, how about the ones we can actually do something about? We can't do anything about somebody who's not our ally and, you know, isn't doing what we want. But what we can do something about is the people we have some control over who we're allies with who we give money and weapons to. So, yes, I would... I would act against them and get on a more neutral footing and stop propping up evil dictators. Um, then also in the framing of the question, oh, he won't accept humanitarian aid. Again, that's just factually not true. He is accepting aid from the international community, just not from the U.S. because it's a PR stunt. And then I, I like how Bernie brought up Vietnam, Chile, Brazil, Guatemala. And then he brought up Saudi Arabia. So his point is we've been meddling in, in South America forever. And the results are horrendous. And that's, I wish he would make more of a principled argument too, not just, oh, it doesn't work. What does that even mean, work? So somehow if the societies were flourishing, then it's okay that we topple democratically elected leaders? No, the argument should be on principle. Do we believe in international law or no? If we believe in international law, we don't get to violate it willy-nilly whenever we want, because that makes no sense. That would mean we're a nation above nations and above the law, not a nation among nations that's beholden to the law. So what we expect of everybody else is what we should expect of ourselves. You've got to follow the law. So I wish you'd make a principled argument against it. It wasn't so much a principled argument, but it was still an argument for intervention nonetheless, for non-intervention nonetheless, which is why, again, Vietnam, Chile, Brazil, Guatemala, he says these are all a disaster. This was all terrible. And then the Saudi Arabia point, I think, is the most poignant because it gets to the fundamental hypocrisy. Because you can't have, our government pretends like, oh, yeah, we care about democracy. Our, one of our top allies is arguably the worst, one of the worst governments in the world. And he even brought up, look at how they treat women. They, you know, they behead people in the public square. Shit like sorcery and witchcraft is illegal. 
This is insane. So that's one of our top allies, and then we're going to pretend like we care about dictators who aren't even as bad as ones that are our top allies? It's just utter nonsense. So, uh, again, I'll take his answer. I think he swings and misses in some ways on the issue of Venezuela, but the overarching theme that I got there was don't get involved, which is the correct point of view in my estimation, and I think it's also wildly popular as well. So uh, we'll take it, and I'm less disappointed in this than I was in some of his recent tweets. Now we go to Michael Cohen. We're going to come back to Bernie in a little bit, but I do want to do some Michael Cohen stuff first. It is Michael Cohen time, bitch, bitch. Oh, I bet a lot of you were waiting for this. I saw some tweets. Some people were like, I can't wait for you to talk about this. All right, first we're going to go to Rokana. So Michael Cohen, um, also known as Trump's right-hand man or his fixer, uh, he testified in front of Congress, and boy, oh boy, did he spill the beans. (laughs) So this was kind of like a soap opera, and it was really fascinating. It's a little upsetting, though, that mainstream media in the U.S. pretty much totally ignored two stories that are more important, Um, one of them being the North Korea summit, and the other one being what's happening in India and Pakistan. Um, Now, we already spoke about the North Korea summit on this show. I'm going to get to the India and Pakistan story in a little bit. But, like, those are definitely more important stories, but mainstream media was just hard over this story. It was a little insufferable, but I agree it was kind of entertaining to see what was going on. And um, so Michael Cohen really, you know, just laid it all out there. Now he's partially trying to save his ass, and he made a deal with authorities. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that what he's saying is untrue. So uh, Justice Democrat and all-around awesome politician Ro Khanna, he had one of the most substantive uh, lines of questioning against Michael Cohen. I want to play this for you, and then I'm going to break it down. Mr. Cohen, I want to focus my questions on the smoking gun document you have provided this committee. This document is compelling evidence of federal and state crimes, including financial fraud. You provided this committee with a check from President Donald J. Trump's revocable trust account, which is marked as Exhibit 5B. It is a check for $35,000, and it is dated March 17, 2017, after the president took office. It's right now on screen. Do you see it, sir? Yes, sir. To be clear, the Trump revocable trust is the trust the president set up to hold his assets after he became president. Is that correct? I believe so. Do you know why you were paid from the trust as opposed to the president's personal account? I don't know the answer to that. Did you think it was odd that he paid you once from his personal account and then he's paying you through the scheme of a trust? I'll be honest, I was just happy to get the check. Today you testified that the check was signed by Donald Trump Jr. and the Trump the organization CFO, Alan Weisselberg. Is that correct? That is correct. According to the criminal charges against you, you sent monthly invoices containing false information to an individual identified as Executive One. Weisselberg is Executive One, correct? Yes. The criminal charge against you then states that Executive One forwarded your invoice 
to someone referred to as Executive Two. Presumably, Donald Trump Jr., who's signing this check, is Executive Two, correct? I believe so. As federal prosecutors laid out in their criminal charges, payments like this check resulted in numerous false statements in the books and records of the Trump Organization. It's important for the American public to understand this. Nothing to do with collusion. This is financial fraud, garden variety financial fraud. It was disguised as a payment for legal services to you. But this was not a payment for legal services, was it, Mr. Cohen? No, sir. It could give rise to serious state and federal criminal liability if a corporation is cooking its books. Based on your testimony today, Donald Trump Jr. and Alan Weisselberg directed this payment to you and approved this payment. Is that right? Mr. Trump initially acknowledged the obligation, the debt. Myself and Alan Weisselberg went back to his office, and I was instructed by Alan at the time that they were going to do this over 12 installments. And what he decided to do then was to have me send an invoice, in which case they can have a check cut. And then, yes, the answer would be yes to your to your uh, follow-up. And, and Donald Trump Jr. obviously signed off on this. Yes, well, it, was, it would either be Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and or Alan Weisselberg, but always Alan Weisselberg on the check. And you think executive, too, is Donald Trump Jr.? Yes. They knew that this payment uh, was false and illegal, correct? I, I can't make that conclusion. You told Representative Kelly that the president was aware of this scheme. Is that correct? That's correct. I just want the American public to understand the explosive nature of your testimony in this document. Are you telling us, Mr. Cohen, that the president directed transactions in conspiracy with Alan Weisselberg and his son, Donald Trump Jr., as part of a civil criminal as part of a criminal conspiracy of financial fraud. Is that your testimony today? Yes. And do you know if this criminal financial scheme that the president, Alan Weisselberg, and Donald Trump Jr. are involved in is being investigated by the Southern District of New York? I'd rather not discuss that question because it could be part of an investigation that's currently ongoing. But I just want the American public to understand that solely apart from Bob Mueller's investigation, there is garden variety financial fraud. And your allegation and the explosive smoking gun documents suggest that the president, his son, and his CFO may be involved in. The video cut off a little early there, but this is the only one I could find. But, okay, this is incredibly important because I think that my prediction that I made on what's going to happen here, I'm now 99% certain that's how it's going to unfold. So in other words, the point I've made time and time again is your, Donald Trump will not, be, um, will not be brought down because of collusion or because of treason or because of uh, working with Russia. Okay? Now, there are some people on the Democratic side who are going to be like, I don't know, distraught based on that fact because they've invested so much into the most extreme interpretation of Russiagate. But what I want to tell those people and what I keep telling those people is this. There's no reason to be distraught. Donald Trump is going to get his day. And it's, again, it's going to be the day he's no longer president 
he's going to be indicted on like a dozen, you know, criminal charges. So you're going to have uh, tax evasion, you're going to have money laundering, you're going to have fraud, you're going to have just a variety of financial crimes that he will be indicted on those crimes. And what Ro Khanna does here is a wonderful job of getting to specifics on that and getting verification on that. So that's why that clip was so important. Now, at a time when other people, other uh, Congress people, were grandstanding like nobody's business and were just looking for wanting to get a soundbite for, the, for, you know, themselves. It was like all selfish and not well-researched and just kind of bloviating. At a time when that was happening, Ro Khanna goes in there and hits everybody over the head with substance and really gets an important back and forth recorded. Now, uh, not only that, so this is Justice Democrat Ro Khanna with a super substantive exchange, but we also have Justice Democrat AOC uh, had a great back and forth with Michael Cohen as well. Take a look at that. Cortez. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Mr. Cohen, I'd like to quickly pick up on some previous lines of questioning before getting into my own. So I may go a little quickly and get it all in five minutes. Uh, first, my colleague from Vermont had asked you uh, several questions about AMI, the parent, the parent company of the National Enquirer. And uh, in that, you mentioned a treasure trove, a quote, treasure trove of documents in David Pecker's office relating to information assembled from all these catch-and-kill operations um, against people who potentially had damaging information on the president. You also mentioned that the president was very concerned about the whereabouts of these documents and who possessed them. Does that treasure trove of documents still exist? I, I don't know. I had asked David Pecker for them. So you would say the person who knows the whereabouts of these documents would be David Pecker? David Pecker, Barry Levine, or... Um, Dylan Howard. Okay, thank you. Um, secondly, I want to ask a little bit about uh, your conversation with my colleague from Missouri about asset inflation. Um, to your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. Who else knows that the president did this? Alan Weisselberg, Ron Lieberman, and Matthew Calamari. And where would the committee find more information on this? Do you think we need to review his financial statements and his tax returns in order to compare them? Yes, and you'd find it at the Trump Org. Thank you very much. Uh, the last, last thing here, uh, the Trump Golf Organization currently has a golf course in my home borough of the Bronx, uh, Trump Links. I drive past it every day going between, Bronx and, going between the Bronx and Queens. Um, in fact, the Washington Post reported on the Trump Links Bronx course in an article entitled, Taxpayers Built This New York Golf Course and Trump Reaps the Rewards. Where many, that, that article is where many New Yorkers and people in the country learned that taxpayers spent $127 million to build Trump Links in a, quote, generous deal allowing President Trump to keep almost every dollar that flows in on a golf course built with public funds. And this doesn't seem to be the only time the president has benefited at the expense of the public. Mr. Cohen, I want to ask you about your assertion that the president may have improperly devalued his assets to avoid paying taxes. 
According to an August 24th, August 21st, 2016 report by the Washington Post, while the president claimed in financial disclosure forms that Trump National Golf Club in Jupiter, Florida, was worth $50 million, he had reported otherwise to local tax authorities that the course was worth, quote, no more than $5 million. Mr. Cohen, do you know whether this specific report is accurate? It's identical to what he did at Trump National Golf Club at Briarcliff Manor. Do you know, to your knowledge, was the president interested in reducing his local real estate bills, tax bills? Yes. And how did he do that? What you do is you deflate the value of the asset, and then you put in a request to the tax department for a deduction. Thank you. Now, in October 2018, the New York Times revealed that, quote, President Trump participated in dubious tax schemes during the 1990s, including instances of outright fraud that greatly increased the fortune he received from his parents. It further stated for Mr. Trump, quote, he also helped formulate a strategy to undervalue his parents' real estate holdings by hundreds of millions of dollars on tax returns, sharply reducing his tax bill when those properties were transferred to him and his siblings. Mr. Cohen, do you know whether that specific report is accurate? I don't. I wasn't there in the 1990s. Who would know the answer to those questions? Alan Weisselberg. And would it help for the committee to obtain federal and state tax returns from the president and his company to address that discrepancy? I believe so. Thank you very much. I yield the rest of my time to the chair. I mean, it's such a night and day difference between what Ro Khanna, AOC, and all the other uh, Congress people said and how they questioned him, because look at how much was just admitted there. I'm telling you, it, it's a guarantee that Donald Trump is going down on financial crimes the day that he's no longer president, 100%. Honestly, it, it's a miracle he was able to get away with all this stuff to this point, and in a weird twist, He's actually protected a little bit by the fact that he's president because it's an open legal question as to whether or not you can indict a sitting president. Chances are you have to, the only way you can get, a, you know, get the president is to impeach him. And to impeach him, it has to be crimes that were done basically while he was in office, high crimes and misdemeanors. So what we're talking about here are it's Trump committing financial crimes going back probably to the 1980s and onward. And now that he became president, he's under this microscope, he's in this investigation that's uncovering so much, his top fixer flipped on him, never mind his financial guy, Weisselberg, who they keep mentioning, who's flipped on him. So, yeah, it's basically a guarantee Trump is going down the day he's no longer president. Um, and that list of crimes is so long, and AOC and Ro Khanna did a wonderful job uh, exposing this here. And, you know, fear not. For all the people in the Russiagate collusion treason crowd, you're not going to get what you want, but you're still going to get quite a bit, which is Donald Trump basically going down in flames. And I think it's never been more clear than it is right now. Okay. Now let's talk about India and Pakistan. This is incredibly important. So it's time to discuss the most important political issue you probably haven't heard too much about in the past few days, 
Pakistan and India are currently uh, fighting, like actually fighting. And um, you're about to see why that's terrifying. There's two news clips here that are spliced together. Um, and you're going to get a little bit of the history of the region as well. So you're going to learn a lot in these next few minutes watching these clips. Um, and you'll come to understand why this may be the number one most important story happening in the world right now. Last night, India carried out a bombing raid in Pakistani territory claiming to target a terrorist group responsible for a deadly attack on Indian forces two weeks ago. As William Brangham reports, this is the most serious escalation in years between the two nuclear-armed adversaries. Indian officials said they successfully destroyed a training camp for the group known as Jaish-e-Mohammed. That group claimed responsibility for a massive suicide bomb attack two weeks ago that killed 38 members of India's security forces. Today, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, standing before photos of those killed two weeks ago, celebrated this retaliatory strike. I will not let this country bow. I take an oath upon this soil that I won't let this country be erased. That earlier attack occurred in Kashmir, the highly disputed region between India and Pakistan that has been a source of conflict for decades between the two nations. For more on all this, I'm joined now by Sumit Ganguly, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Indiana University in Bloomington. Professor, thank you very much for being here. Before we get to this most recent escalation, I wonder if you could just explain for those people who have not been following this, why is it that Kashmir, that region between the two nations, is such an open wound between them. This is an issue that was not resolved at the time when the British were withdrawing from the subcontinent in 1947. And both India and Pakistan laid claim to this border state which abuts both the two countries. India wanted to claim Kashmir because it's a Muslim majority region and wanted to demonstrate that a significant minority could thrive within a predominantly Hindu country. Pakistan, by the same token, which had been created as a homeland for the Muslims of South Asia, felt that an adjoining region had to be part of Pakistan and otherwise Pakistan would be incomplete. And it's this sense of incompleteness that has driven Pakistani policy and lay and helped uh, drive Pakistan's claim to Kashmir. But since India controls two-thirds of the state, uh, which is what it managed to, to hold after Pakistan launched an invasion shortly after the British departure, uh, that it refuses to concede ground, and Pakistan holds on to the one-third that it does. There have been multiple wars trying to resolve this issue and a series of negotiations, but they have all ultimately run aground. So given that long acrimony, how do you see this most recent uh, escalation unfolding over the next few days? This is a somewhat fraught situation, particularly since this is the first time that the Indian Air Force has struck across what is called the line of control, which is the de facto international border between India and Pakistan in this disputed state. And uh, this is the first time that India used its air force across the border since the 1971 war. And consequently, uh, sentiments in Pakistan, I suspect, are quite uh, raw at the moment. And Prime Minister Imran Khan w will feel compelled to respond in some fashion. So the next 
few days and weeks are really uh, a time probably laden with considerable tension, and we could see artillery barrages take place along the line of control. And let's say that Pakistan does respond with artillery barrages or, or more. Uh, what does India do in response to that? The Indians probably will return fire, especially in the form of artillery barrages. I doubt that the Indians would m try to mount a second airstrike because by now Pakistan's air defenses are probably on a state of high alert and are likely to remain for in the foreseeable future. The fact that their air defenses were penetrated by Indian aircraft is obviously a source of considerable distress to Pakistani decision makers, and particularly the overweening Pakistani military establishment. The U.S. For, for many, many years has played something of a brokering role between these two countries. What, what role do you imagine the U.S. playing in trying to defuse this situation? Ideally, the U.S. would try and step in and try to broker some, so, some sort of a peace. But at this moment, I think if the U.S. were to simply urge restraint in both Islamabad and New Delhi, uh, given the sentiments in New Delhi and in significant parts of northern India, that would not be received very well. They, I think at this point, New Delhi would want the, uh, uh, Washington, D.C. to put to exert considerable pressure on Pakistan, as it has done uh, a few times in the recent past, particularly during the 1999 Cargill War. But suggesting that both sides exercise restraint probably would not be very well received in New Delhi, though that is exactly what Islamabad would want under the circumstances. Tensions are high between India and Pakistan as both countries order airstrikes against each other. Uh, both countries have nuclear weapons. Pakistan says it shot down two Indian warplanes and captured one of their pilots. This is still happening along the country's borders in the disputed territory of Kashmir, a historic hotbed of conflict. BBC News correspondent Sikandar Karmani is in Islamabad, where Pakistan's Prime Minister is calling for de-escalation. So I've just come out of a, a briefing, a press conference by the Pakistani military. Uh, the Pakistani military spokesman broke down uh, the chronology of these dramatic events that took place today. According to him, uh, this began when Pakistani uh, jets from within Pakistani airspace targeted uh, Indian uh, positions within India across the border. As a response to those uh, strikes, he says that Indian jets crossed over into Pakistani airspace and Pakistani uh, planes shot down two Indian jets. This is the first time in history two nuclear armed powers directly attacked each other. Basically, we are relying on the restraint and the intelligence of the leadership of both sides. Because when uh, nuclear armed powers attack each other, all it takes is one side to say, fuck this, we're putting an end to this right now. And the bombs are in the air. absolutely terrifying. You know, multiple previous presidents in the modern era 
were asked, what's the one issue that keeps you up at night? They didn't say Russia. They didn't say Al-Qaeda. They didn't say North Korea. They didn't say Iran. You know what they said? India and Pakistan. Listen, I think it really is the case that human beings just aren't ready for nuclear technology. We're just not ready. There's this mythology that's been created around the U.S. nuking Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, about how, well, since we, since we dropped the weapons then, now everybody knows we shall never do it again. No, that's not the lesson people learned. Um, you pretty much made that up. And actually, experts say it's probably inevitable that at some point they will be used again. And when that happens, you're looking at a cataclysmic civilization-ending event in the long run. Um, think about that. What do they say the, the um, I forget what it's called, the apocalypse clock, the end times clock, whatever it's called, that that's like two minutes to midnight or something, like we're really on the brink of the worst case scenario happening? Well, now we're even closer because this is not like, I don't think people really get it. They don't get it. Like human history is just a litany of everybody fucking everybody up, like everybody fighting everybody, everybody going to war, going to war over religion, going to war over resources, going to war over land, going to war over honor, like it's just all, that's all of human history, and like it wasn't even that long ago when a fucking absolute maniacal psychopath um, tried to take over the world on the basis of eugenics and junk race science, like that wasn't even that long ago, that was Hitler. That's not even that long ago. That's in my grandparents' lifetime. So the fact that that happened and the world almost ended, and it wasn't that long ago, and now what? We think we figured everything out in the decades since then? Nonsense. We're just as fucking stupid as we were back then. So I really don't think people get it. Like, people, there's a recency bias that people have where it's like, well, we haven't been, nobody's been nuked recently. So, like, we're good, right? No, not even close to right. And what, uh, like they said in one of the clips there, the U.S. plays as a broker for peace in between those two countries. What do you do when the U.S. administration is totally incompetent and doesn't know anything about the region or anything about what's happening? What do you do? You fucking run scared. (laughs) That's what you do. You buy, like, a bunker in the middle of Oklahoma in rural-ass Oklahoma, and you live in the bunker, and you hope that everything doesn't get destroyed around you. (laughs) I'm not even trying to, and I'm convincing all of you and myself to become an end-times prepper. (laughs) But no, this isn't funny, and I shouldn't be laughing. Um, Yeah, most important story in the world right now. I would argue this even is ahead of North Korea and the U.S. and the peace talks, although that's a close second, because... We're on the brink of something amazing on that front as we move in the wrong direction on the India and Pakistan front. But, God, I hope this all gets worked out, man, because goodness gracious. And I don't know much about the, the regime in Pakistan, but what I do know is Modi has been described by experts as basically a Hindu fundamentalist, and he's kind of far right. So is that who you want, like, making the decision as to attacks and a war in India? No. (laughs) That's the equivalent of, like, the Republicans in this country being in control. Like, 
as bad as the Democrats are, and they're bad, do you trust, just generally speaking from a judgment perspective, do you trust Obama's judgment or Trump's judgment? Even with, and I have a zillion criticisms of Obama, but if you just give me that judgment alone, I'm going Obama 10 out of 10 times, and you're crazy if you don't. So by the same token, I guess India has their own Trump here, and he's the one, like, giving speeches. Oh, God damn it. Oh, seriously, we might have to uh, try to do some. Imagine the entire secular talk community, we all get together and pool our resources and try to do, like, we all do an end times prep thing and we build, like, an underground city or something. No, that wouldn't. The government would in no way allow that to happen. They would kill my ass like I'm David Koresh. (laughs) They would call me a cult leader and everything. I'm just like, bro, I'm just trying to survive the nuclear apocalypse. I don't know what you guys are talking about. (laughs) Oh, we're all going to die, aren't we? All right, next. I got to go back to Bernie Sanders' town hall for two segments. All right, so Medicare for All will be the next topic that we cover. So Bernie Sanders did a town hall a few days ago, and um, I still want to cover, there's a couple more clips that I think are important and that you guys should see. Um, Wolf Blitzer was aggressive in his questioning here on the issue of Medicare for All, and notice the perspective from which he was aggressive. That's so important. Uh, Bernie Sanders at this point had already been talking about Medicare for All for a few minutes, and then here's what happens after. Talk a little bit about uh, uh, Medicare for All, because about half of Americans, as you know, they're insured by their employer plans. According to a recent Gallup poll, 70% of these people with private health insurance, their plans, they like their plans. They think their plans are good. Will these people be able to keep their health insurance plans, their private plans, through their employers if there is a Medicare for All program that you endorse? What they will, what will change in their plans is the color of their card. So instead of having a Blue Cross Blue Shield card, instead of having a United Health Insurance card, they're going to have a Medicare card. That Medicare card will allow them both to go to any doctor that they want. They go to the doctor, they're happy, any hospital they want. But you know what else? They're not going to be paying any private insurance premiums. If they are seniors, we are going to expand Medicare benefits to cover dental care, which is not covered for seniors, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. There will be comprehensive health care. People can go to any doctor, dentist, or a hospital they want. So if they like their health insurance plan, they won't be able to keep their health insurance plan? Well, nobody, this business of liking your health insurance plan, which, by the way, employers change every single year. People like their doctors. They like the hospitals. They like the care they're getting. Our bill, in fact, right now, if you are in a particular program, you may not be able to go to the doctor that you want. Our, our program will allow you free. But if they to wanted additional private health insurance beyond Medicare for all, would they be allowed to purchase that kind of health if insurance? They want, our bill covers all health care needs, all. If people want cosmetic surgery, for example, yes, of course, they can get private insurance. 
but our bill covers all comprehensive health care needs. So here's what's wrong with that. I have no problem at all with aggressive questioning and with, you know, holding people accountable. But the job of the media is to give you facts and information, but also to hold the powerful accountable. Instead, what Wolflitzer does there is the exact opposite. He inverts his responsibility. So he is aggressive from the perspective of the status quo. So the, it, notice, it's not, he's not saying like, oh my God, we have all of these problems that currently exist in our system. How, Bernie Sanders, are you going to fix the fact that up to 45,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care? How are you going to fix the fact that I have the, actually have um, a story later on that we'll cover, that 42% of people diagnosed with cancer go bankrupt and lose their life assets within two years? How are you going to address that fact, Bernie? We have all these problems that currently exist. How are you going to fix these, Bernie? That would be aggressive, and that would be proper framing where you're trying to fix real problems and you're holding the powerful accountable. Instead, he inverts his responsibility, and he defends the powerful, defends the status quo against the person who's trying to hold the powerful accountable and fix the system. So that's what's wrong with this, because notice, he's saying, well, what about all the people who like their plan? What? So in other words, he's saying, leave, leave the system alone, Bernie. Why would you want to change the system? He wants to change the system because it's a fucking mess. It's the worst in the developed world. That's why he wants to change it. What about people who like their plans, Bernie? Well, as Bernie accurately said, and this was the perfect response, people don't give a shit about their plans. People care about their doctor. They want to keep their doctor. And he's saying, under my plan, you can keep your doctor. You can go to whoever you want. You have freedom of choice. But keep your plan. By the way, I like how... This is one of those things where it's a uniquely American perspective. People are just accept the fact that we have plans. What does that mean when it comes to health care, when it comes to health insurance? Well, you know, if something happens to my spleen, yes, I would like coverage. But if something happens to my kidney, nah, I'm good. I'll leave the kidney out of my package. Um, I mean, listen, me, I mean, if I get hurt, I would like you to cover 80% of it, and I'll cover 20% of it. What the fuck are you talking about? In every other developed country, here's the extent of the plans. Everybody has the same one. Here's how it goes. You're sick, you get help. End of story. Sick, help. To steal from the great Denzel Washington movie, John Q. Sick, help. End of story. Sick, help. End of story. Nothing out of pocket, free at the point of service. But... Wolf Blitzer just assumes that plans are totally rational and reasonable. I mean, seriously, think about how crazy it is. The idea that in health care and in health insurance, like it's any other product, like you're buying a couch, you know? Like, oh, that couch is firm, that couch is soft. I guess I want the, the firm package, please. Okay, for couches, it makes sense because there's different things. For health care, we all are going to get sick at some point. We're all going to die at some point. We all need help at some point. To fucking micromanage the kind of help that you can get and the kind of help you don't get, that's, I mean, the very implication there is there are some things where I'll take the risk, and if something happens to this aspect of me, I, I'll go bankrupt maybe if I, if I happen to have to cross that bridge and I get sick in that specific way. It's just so dumb. It's so dumb, and nobody questions the, 
the, the underlying assumption there, and Wolf Blitzer just regurgitates it like it's, uh, eat, like it's obvious. Like, well, what do you mean? People love their plans. Are you fucking kidding? Everybody has a nightmare story about their health in, in, insurance plan. Everybody does. I told you guys um, mine how there was, uh, you know, I, I have it on auto payment, and then there was something that happened, and the payment didn't go through, and there was a lapse in the insurance. And what happens, what would have happened if in that two-week span something happened to me, and I had to go to the hospital, and I don't have coverage in that two-week span. What happens? I'll tell you what happens. You go fucking bankrupt. That's what happens. You know how other countries, other developed countries, look at us when that happens? They're like, what the fuck are you guys doing? You got $7 trillion you could waste in Iraq? You can bail out Wall Street to the tune of trillions of dollars, but you can't give everybody health care? Do you realize how fucking stupid that sounds? Do you realize how dis- disgraceful your priorities are? And the reality is, guys, everybody wants everybody to be covered. But our system's so corrupt that big pharma and for-profit health insurance companies control the system. And they get idiots like Wolf Blitzer to be, uh, you know, journalists and to frame questions from their perspective. As if they're like, the default system is wonderful when it's horrendous. Um, so I noticed he said 70% want to keep their own uh, health insurance plan. First of all, who did that study? What was the framing of the question? Like, these are all important because usually you have industry uh, funded research here, which is, it's like push polling. They're trying to get a specific answer, so that's why they do it. Notice what he doesn't say. Wolf Blitzer doesn't say 70% of Americans want Medicare for all. Why? Because that undermines his philosophy and his ideology and the perspective he's framing the question from. Um, but yes, the main point is, at Bernie's correct, it covers everything. It doesn't ban uh, private health insurance, by the way. If you want supplemental private health insurance, you can get it. But the default is everybody's covered for every serious thing. Yes, you want cosmetic surgery, like Bernie says, then you get some supplemental insurance or whatever. But everybody's covered for every actual issue in terms of health. And uh, it'll cut the cost almost in half. And it'll have better health outcomes. And we'll be much better off. No medical bankruptcies anymore. But no, Wolf Blitzer has to defend the establishment, frame the questions from the perspective of the status quo, and uh, that's why he's in that position, guys, because he's not going to, like, is he going to aggressively question candidates who are not for Medicare for all and say, why don't you support Medicare for all? 70% of the country supports Medicare for all. Why don't you support it? Why don't you support it when up to 45,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care? Why wouldn't you support Medicare for all? Why wouldn't you support it when we co- pay double what other countries pay and we don't even cover everybody? He's not going to frame questions against people who are not for Medicare for all in an aggressive way, but he does frame it for the person who's for Medicare for all in an aggressive way because he's a sycophant and he's a bootlicker to the establishment and the powers that be and the status quo, and that's why he is where he is. Okay. All right, let me do one more, then we'll take a quick break. So Bernie was asked about his position on universal preschool in his town hall, I wanted to play this clip for you because this is vintage, classic Bernie Sanders, and I think it's my favorite moment of the town hall. Watch. Most countries with developed economies offer public preschool as a standard benefit to all of their three- and four-year-olds. America does not, as we know. Instead, low-income parents here scrambled for scarce public spots while middle-income families scrounge to pay for increasingly costly private preschool. Very few can afford the cost of quality care. If you become president, will you support efforts 
to offer high-quality, optional, publicly funded preschool for all Americans? Want a one-word answer? Absolutely. All right, I'll tell you why. Thanks for asking that question. This is an issue that does not get enough attention. Every psychologist in the world, what do they tell us? They tell us that the most important years of human development are zero through four, the intellectual and emotional development. And yet we have a system which is basically dysfunctional, as you described. You have workers who are underpaid, and yet you have parents, working class people, who cannot afford the care that they need, and many kids are not getting the kinds of nourishment, intellectual and emotional, that they need. And you know what all of the studies tell us? Is that when you invest in pre-K education and you make sure that kids are prepared for school, they are much less likely to drop out. They're much less likely to do bad things and end up in jail. Every dollar you invest in preschool education will be paid back many, many times. So we got a lot of work to do in education, from higher education to preschool to improving our public schools as well. And when people tell me we cannot afford to do that, I say we cannot not afford to do that. This is the future of the country. Yeah, that was basically a perfect answer. Um, she asked the question, and he goes, you want a one-word answer? Absolutely, to, to the idea of uh, universal preschool. Yeah, that's, I mean, compare that with, like, Cory Booker. Remember the story we covered recently where he released a video on his Twitter called Believe, where in it he's just, like, vomiting platitudes at you? I believe that what we can do, America, is we can come together. And I believe there's nothing we can't accomplish if we take it on united. Like, just saying stupid platitudes and cliches and just saying nothing and doing fake sincerity. This is basically the polar opposite of that. You ask a specific question about a specific policy, do you support it, and you start with one-on-one word answer, absolutely. Awesome. And I think my favorite part of that clip, and this was my favorite part of, I think, the whole town hall, look at her face when he says absolutely. Look at her face. Her face is like, Thank you. <laughs> like, it's almost like I've been in the trenches out here asking politicians to do the bare minimum to s- support their constituents and do what we ask of them. And I get gaslight, gaslit everywhere I go. Gaslighted, gaslight, gaslit. People don't listen to me everywhere I go. There you go. <laughs> we'll go with that. People don't listen to me. And then I ask you, and you're like, yeah, absolutely, I support that. Let's do that. And then, you know, he further uh, makes his argument and says, here are all the benefits that go hand in hand with doing that. And we can invest in this. We spend too much money on too much stupid stuff. This is a great thing to spend money on, universal preschool. Can't beat it, man. Go, again, go back and look at her face. Go back and look at her face because that, it almost brought a tear to my eye. Because she asked this question about a specific policy that would help so many people. And he's just like, yeah, absolutely, I support it. And her face is like, it's almost like he took a burden off her shoulders right there. And that's what separates Bernie from many of the other candidates, is that you know he's going to fight for these things. Whereas even somebody who means well, generally, like Elizabeth Warren, you're not sure she's going to fight. Sometimes she's going to do the, let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya together and work something out. And in the process of working something out, she can give away the farm. 
Whereas Bernie, you know he's going to be in there and he's going to be a fierce advocate for the people. So love that moment. More of that in the future. You, you have any idea? Politicians are so silly. They don't even realize that, like, hey, assholes, you want to, like, be liked more by people? Just be direct. Just be direct. Do you support this? Yes. <laughs> That's it. It's not that hard, man. If you're a regular person and you're asked a question, if you're hanging out at a bar with somebody and somebody asks you, oh, do you like this? What are you going to say? You're going to give me your answer. No, I don't like that. Yeah, I like that. But somehow for politicians, they go out there and they got to fucking talk circles around everybody and, and jump through hoops. No, just keep it real. And that is such an important characteristic, and so few politicians have it. Okay. Take a break when we come back. Um... Tucker Carlson goes after Bernie Sanders, and it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And then um, the Democratic Congress has some good news for us in terms of uh, background checks and gun reform. So stay right there. We'll talk about all that and more. We'll be right back.
Alright, bitch, we back. My, uh... My throat has been thoroughly numbed. That was so necessary, you have no idea. I hope whatever this is goes away fast. I woke up. I don't mean to gross you guys out, but I'll tell the story anyway. (laughs) I woke up, and it was like there was a, a brick of mucus in the back of my throat. Really disgusting and kind of painful. A little bit painful. All right, let's make fun of Tucker Carlson. Oh, wait, did I uh, forget to print? Hmm, hold on. No, I didn't. Okay, never mind. Never mind. All right. Here we go. So, former Hillary Clinton staffers did a hit piece on Bernie Sanders recently in Politico where they went after him for taking a private plane during the campaign in 2016. What they don't tell you is he was taking private planes to get all around the country in, with, um, you know, in, in a short amount of time to campaign for her because he didn't want Donald Trump to get elected. So the attempt here is a hypocrisy burn, like, oh, bro, you care about climate change? And meanwhile, you've taken private planes? <laughs> what a joke you are, bro. Um, I mean, that's, it's so dumb for so many reasons. But you know who uh, heard this argument and thought, nailed it? Tucker Carlson. So he had on Adam Green, who's a a lefty, and Tucker is going to try to hammer him on this hypocrisy non-point. So let's watch that, and then I'll come back and tell you why this is even dumber than you think it is. Of course. He should spend the last few days of the campaign doing everything he can to fight no, for a Green New Deal. You and should reduce your own values. emissions. No, it's really simple. You, you should, should walk to work your own emissions. You should, you should live, emissions. yes, yes. You walk for you should live by the standards. You just said yes. You should live by the standards. That shows I'm just saying that he should you take, described. Okay. Taking you know a car, you're doing? You are making excuses because all I'm you not. want is power. I've you're seen exactly you make kind of better arguments. Tucker, no, I've seen no. you make better what arguments. What you're doing is exposing from Vermont. You're exposing the shallowness of your the car argument. Anybody who takes any plane. This is idiotic. Is it idiotic? You just said he should he should walk from Vermont to D.C. Obviously, you don't believe that. Okay. Obviously, you don't believe that. He's not a hypocrite okay. for doing that. He believes in tens right. of millions okay. of new jobs in the clean energy economy. This is, this is idiotic what you're saying because, look, you will never walk, walk from Vermont to D.C. Or your leaders you just said dumb he talking should walk from Vermont to D.C. I asked right. if he should walk. You said right. yes. Come on. Not a real argument. You, you got me, Adam. You got me. You're a brilliant guy. Thank you so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. We're going to um, we have pictures, apparently. That was so great. <laughs> He's trying to, like, mock Adam Green, but Adam Green is making a perfectly reasonable point, and he's perfectly engaged in the conversation. Like, it's not like Adam Green stopped to smear Tucker or yell at Tucker or make a bad point. Like, he's, he's engaging in the conversation on the grounds that Tucker wants to engage in the conversation on. And when he makes a point that Tucker can't refute, he, like, Tucker just starts mocking. Like, uh, this is idiotic. This is idiotic. Oh, yeah, you're a smart guy, Adam. You got me, bro. Actually, yeah, he did get you. He did get you. Why, like, why are you being so dense on purpose? I mean, 
listen, here's why this is just an insanely dumb talking point. Anytime they try to hypocrisy burn somebody on the issue of climate change, it's always going to be dumb. So I think climate change is real. I also own a car that burns gas. I get good gas mileage out of my car, but that's even if I didn't, even if I drove a fucking pickup truck and didn't get great uh, gas mileage, that doesn't mean you're not allowed to accept empirical reality and say, oh, climate change is happening and we should do something about it. And the main point is, the only way to get something done on climate change, you can never solve it at the individual level. Because just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of carbon emissions. Let me repeat that. 100 companies do 71% of carbon emissions. So even if every single individual decided, every single individual on the planet decided, I am going to have zero emissions, you would still have 71% of the carbon emissions that are already happening, which is totally unsustainable and can't happen. So even if everybody is as responsible on an individual level as, person, as, as humanly possible, you still wouldn't make a dent in climate change and we would still be screwed. Now, that's not an argument to do nothing and throw our hands up and say, fuck it. That's an answer to regulate those 100 companies, come up with new laws, do a Green New Deal where we rapidly move towards green and renewable technology, create thousands, if not millions of jobs um, in the process of it. Like, this is something people look at it like, oh, it's not possible. No, it's actually an opportunity if we treat it as such. But dumb hypocrisy burns aren't accomplishing anything, and it's not a good point. It's just not a good point. It's like when they say, oh, yeah, you're rich, and you want to raise taxes on the rich? Why don't you, like, pay more taxes yourself? That's such a stupid point, because the argument is, hey, we need to raise taxes on the rich to fund things like uh, universal uh, free college, which costs about $62 billion. If one or two billionaires says, you know what, I'll pay an extra billion this year. You still are nowhere near the number you need in order to get free college. In other words, it has to be systemic change. It's not sustainable on an individual level, and it wouldn't work on an individual level. So there are some things that need to be done top down. Now, that doesn't mean everything needs to be done top down, but to act like nothing needs to be done at the governmental level at the public level as opposed to the private level? Do you have any idea how stupid that is? That really is one of the dumbest fucking things I've ever heard in my life. Obviously, something's required. I mean, that's like saying, oh, it's time to fight World War II. Well, why don't you just pick up a gun yourself and go over to Nazi Germany yourself and start fighting Nazis? It required a mass mobilization effort from the top down at the public level, not the private level. It would have been impossible at the private level. You had to do it at the public level. It's obvious when you look at it from the perspective of fighting Nazis, but it's not obvious when it comes to fucking climate change, when 100 companies do 71% of the emissions. Tucker, you are not that dumb. Adam Green is right. You're not that dumb. You're making a cheap, partisan, hacky point, and you know it. That hurt my throat. <laughs> Screaming in that segment hurt my throat. All right, next.
Now let's talk about some good news. So the Democratic Congress has some good news for us. This is from The Hill. They say, eight House Republicans voted with Democrats on Wednesday to support legislation that would require universal background checks for gun sales despite opposition from the gun lobby. Nearly all the Republicans who broke with their party are centrists, including several who represent competitive swing districts. The number of GOP defectors was only slightly higher than the five Republicans excuse me, who had signed on as co-sponsors to the legislation. Those five are Representative Peter King, who co-authored the bill with Representative Mike Thompson, as well as Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, Brian Mass, Fred Upton, and Chris Smith. But three more Republicans joined them in supporting final passage of the measure Wednesday, um, Representative Vern Buchanan, that's an awesome name, Mario Diaz-Balart, and Will Hurd. So, let me tell you a little bit more about this legislation. Uh, it would require universal background checks for gun sales, including at gun shows, which there's a giant loophole there now, and including in private online transactions. So, um, it passed the House. It's almost certainly going to die in the Senate. And even if it were to get through the Senate, Trump would probably veto it. So, it's not going to go anywhere. But this is a political opportunity for the Democrats to put pressure on the Republicans. Because, again, this is an issue where polls show about 90 to 93% of the American people agree on the issue of universal background checks. So you can make that a political issue, and you can fight on that issue. And if you do that, you'll be successful. You'll absolutely be successful. So um, this is where Democrats are sorely lacking, and this is why their strategists suck. They'll do something like this, which is the right thing to do, and then it'll be news for three and a half minutes. No Democrats will continue to talk about it, and then you have this political opportunity that'll go right by where they don't all focus on the same thing, hammer away on it, uh, have meetings where they craft their arguments and their talking points, and then go out in the media and repeat them. So, And that's something that the Republicans are actually great about. They're great at getting together, coming up with a, a strategy, repeating their talking points in the media until that becomes the story that everybody's talking about. You know, and that, like we're seeing it right now with Democrats, they're arguing that Democrats now support post-birth abortion. There's a term for that. It's called murder. <laughs> and no, they don't support it. That's illegal. That's already illegal. And if you knew anything at all about case law in the U.S. when it comes to the Supreme Court, if you knew anything at all about abortion law in the U.S., you would know, first of all, According to the Guttmacher Institute, which studies this, 99%, 99% of abortions in this country happen before 20 weeks, pre-viability. 89% happen before 12 weeks. And the 1% that happens post-20 weeks, most of them are earlier on, 25 weeks or so, and it's only for life of the mother, fatal fetal defect, 100% to protect the mother's health. Because most states, it's over 20 states, regulate late-term abortions and actually ban late-term abortions. Some states have different regulations with certain exceptions, but there are no states where it is legal to murder a baby. <laughs> I have to actually say this out loud to people. How fucking crazy is this? But why are we even having this conversation? Because Republicans just did a giant effort for a week straight where they took uh, comments out of context and then they ran with it and pretended that uh, Democrats are all in favor of murdering babies. Whereas now we have a story where Democrats are on the right side of an issue, common sense gun reform, where 90 to 93% want universal background checks on gun purchases. They propose gun purchases. I haven't heard any Democrat talk about it. I had to read articles about it. I haven't heard a single Democrat talk about it. 
So, I mean, this is Democrats politically sucking, but in terms of the policy, they're right. And they should be playing politics along with this policy to raise awareness and to get people on their side. Um, and I will say there is a little bit of a compromise in this bill. It does carve out exemptions for certain circumstances. So there's not a background check for transfers between family members. There's not a background check for use in hunting. And there's not a background check, quote, when necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm, such as domestic violence. So there are some, a few exceptions, but this is, you know, closing many of the loopholes when it comes to background checks. It's an awesome, simple idea. It's a no-brainer. And unfortunately, there won't be a big fight on it, but there should be, because when Mitch McConnell blocks this, he'll be blocking a piece of legislation which over 90% of the American people support, which means he's basically an authoritarian, tyrannical character who doesn't care about the will of the people, including the majority of his own party. So that should be the talking point. That's what Democrats should be saying, but instead they won't be saying much, and Mitch McConnell will get away with it as he gets away with almost everything he does that's unpopular. All right, let me give you a story on Ro Khanna's new bill, which you're going to love. We've been giving him quite a bit of credit today. There's basically three separate stories where he gets credit. So good news, everybody. Um, Ro Khanna is making us proud yet again. He's sticking to his principles and being boldly anti-war, even though politics sometimes makes for strange bedfellows. He's saying, I don't care about that. I care about the policy. So take a look at this. As President Trump arrives in Hanoi, Vietnam, Representative Ro Khanna, along with 18 Democratic members of Congress, have introduced a resolution calling for a final settlement of the Korean War, now officially in its 68th year. The resolution, which is backed by former President and Nobel Peace Laureate uh, Jimmy Carter and a range of Korean-American and pro-diplomacy organizations, urges the Trump administration to provide a clear roadmap to achieve a final peace settlement while highlighting the importance of reciprocal actions and confidence-building measures between the parties. Historic engagement between South and North Korea has created a once-in-a-generation opportunity to formally end this war, said Representative Ro Khanna, a member of the House Armed Services Committee. President Trump must not squander this rare chance for peace. He should work hand-in-hand with our ally, South Korean President Moon Jae-in, to bring the war uh, to a close and advance towards the denuclearization of the peninsula. Current original co-sponsors include uh, Pramila Jayapal, Mark Pocan, Barbara Lee, Deb Haaland, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eleanor Holmes Norton, Jan uh, Schakowsky, Raul Grijalva, Bobby Rush, Eddie Bernice Johnson, Tulsi Gabbard, Adriano um, Espaillat, Andy Kim, Rashida Tlaib, Judy Chu, and Jose Serrano, and Gwen Moore. I want to give all of them credit because this is wonderful. So basically what this is, is 18 Democrats standing up and saying, okay, listen, we're supposed to be the anti-war party. Um, in this one rare, super rare issue, because he's escalating elsewhere, Trump is going, okay, fine, let's make some sort of a peace deal with uh, North Korea. And this is Democrats going, I'll take it. I'll take it. What do you mean? Of course, absolutely, let's do it. So they're proposing legislation that uh, buttresses that. And listen, here's what I would say to the other Democrats who are not on board with this. You're frauds. <laughs> so that's harsh, but you're not issues-based. And that's my main uh, beef that I have with politicians outside of the corruption, because that's another long conversation and different story for a different day. But, 
you're supposed to care about actual issues. You're supposed to have principled beliefs. So, you know, for example, raising the minimum wage, being pro-worker, being pro-union, that's principled belief. If a Republican president randomly says, I'm going to support card check and a living wage, if you flip on that, you're a fraud. You're just a partisan hack. So here we have Ro Khanna standing by his principles. He's anti-war. Uh, he's pro-peace. And he's saying, I don't care that Trump is pursuing this. Let's do it. Let's do it. So there's 18 co-sponsors, and it's a lot of the usual suspects in terms of the awesome politicians. I hope every other Democrat jumps on board with this, because it doesn't matter if you give a president a symbolic victory. What matters is that you're on the right side of history and you're doing the right thing. And I got news for you. It's actually not true that, oh, if Trump does this, he'll get all the credit and that's that. Well, no, if the Democrats are pushing it and more Democrats push it than Republicans in the House, well, then the reality just got a lot more compli complicated, didn't it? You had weird cross-partisan issue here where the Republican president randomly agrees with the Democratic Congress people and the Republicans are standing with their fucking weapons manufacturers and against peace and with the neocons and the deep state. And, you know, hey, it's weird. Politics does make for strange bedfellows, but it is what it is. And take wins where you can get them. Take yes for an answer. You know, it's like when Rand Paul and, and or when Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders used to work together. It's like, yeah, they disagree on everything when it comes to economics and domestic policy, but they agree on foreign policy and they agree on drug policy. So why not work together on those issues? So this is great. Credit to Ro Khanna. Um, it's great to know that there are some Democrats who are not partisan hacks and they actually care about the issues. And that's important, man. That really is, because you don't understand how much people like myself and many of you lose hope in the system when, like, if Trump randomly stumbles on something decent, like, let's pull out a TPP, and then Democrats are all of a sudden all pro-TPP. It's like, oh, what are we even doing politics for? It's such a waste of time. You're all hacks and corrupt idiots. But on issues like this, it's like, oh, shit, yes. We got Democrats to stand principle on an issue, and randomly Trump fell onto the proper position of an issue. I'm not saying he thought through it. I'm not saying he's intelligent to get to that conclusion. He just happened to stumble on it, probably based off of his anti-Obamaism. But I don't care. I'll take it. So let's work towards peace. Let's work towards ending the war. And let's be principled on all the issues. And then, by the way, you'll find out when you do that, people actually like you. People actually like you if you do that. And you become really popular. And that's why Ro Khan is probably one of the most famous members of Congress now. Because he's been consistently pushing for the proper side of issues. And now he's one of the most well-known. Turns out when you're bold and you're brave and you stand on principle, you end up gaining a following, and rightfully so. Okay. This next story will be short, but it's important for you to understand how fucked up our system is. I mentioned this in a previous segment, but i got to give you the reality of it again in its own standalone segment. As I staple my pages live on air. So there's a story that went viral that I have to share with you because it says so much about our healthcare system. Kaiser Health News says more than 42% of the 9.5 million people diagnosed with cancer from 2000 to 2012 drained their life's assets within two years, according to a study published last year in the American Journal of Medicine. 
So basically, almost half of cancer patients went bankrupt and drained their life, their life's assets. You know, there's this joke that was floating around on Twitter, and it's totally true, that you couldn't have the show Breaking Bad in other developed countries. Because when he gets diagnosed with cancer, the doctor would be like, okay, you start your treatment next Tuesday. Instead, he lives in the U.S. where he can't afford his cancer treatment, so he has to start selling crystal meth. And, you know, it seems almost like a flippant, glib thing that that's a joke going around, but it's actually totally true. Like, that's what it's like. If he was in the U.K., if he was in Australia, if he was in Canada, he would just get the treatment that he needs. I was watching David Dole, the Rational National, um, who's another left-wing talk show host, and he was doing an interview, um, I think, with the progressive voice, and he was talking about how I'm a Canadian. I literally never once in my life had to worry about health care, ever. And I'm watching it like, damn, that must be super sweet. Because <laughs> yeah, I've had lapses in my insurance, and, you know, you, sometimes you go to the doctor. One time I, I went, I, I have coverage, okay, health insurance. I went to the doctor, I got blood work done. So it's a regular, like, every year, every, more like every other year I get it done or whatever. I get a bill in the mail a few weeks later for $900. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, oh, that's what your blood work costs. What? I, I thought that the checkup, you get, oh, you can get a once-a-year checkup, and that's free. I thought that was part of Obamacare. But there's all these fucking fine print nonsense clauses of like, oh, but the blood work isn't the default. That's some extra shit that you got. Oh. But what the fuck? Then what's a checkup? Does he just take the fucking hammer thing and hit my knee a few times and say, your reflexes are good. Now get out. Is that what it is? Is that what a normal checkup is? It's unconscionable. And I'm sure many of you have similar stories with your health insurance and how it's a nightmare. And listen, man, we're sick of it. Americans are sick of it. And the media can't gaslight gaslight us anymore. The Republican politicians can't gaslight us anymore. The corporate Democrats can't gaslight us anymore. We're being screwed. And it's time to fight back. And that's why there are no compromises coming up. Now it's time, Bernie 2020, and when he gets in there, he'll fight tooth and nail for this, and he'll do everything he can to get us Medicare for all. And we can't rest until we get it, because honestly, it's a no-brainer. When you create a civilized society and you you start listing things off. What's going to be the commons? What's going to be funded by the public? What's going to be off the table? In the top five on that list is healthcare, And we're not even at that point. We don't even have that. And that's maddening, man. And then we get fucking insane facts like this, like nearly half of fucking cancer patients go bankrupt in two years, lose all their life's assets. And we act like this isn't a huge story. This is a gigantic story, but you're only going to hear about it on this show. It went viral on Twitter, because Twitter involves real people who are like, holy fuck, CNN won't talk about this, MSNBC won't talk about this, Fox News won't talk about it. If anything, when Wolf Blitzer does his town hall with Bernie, he framed everything from the perspective of the insurance companies and said, you're not going to let people keep their health insurance, but they like it. This is the fucking system you're defending, asshole. This is the fucking system. 42, more than 42% of the 9.5 million people diagnosed with cancer from 2000 to 2012 drained their life's assets within two years. You, it's so bad, you even have people who are like upper middle class people. One of them gets sick, and they go bankrupt. So all poor people, you're done if this happens. All middle class people, you're done if this happens. Some upper middle class people, you're done if this happens. So only the rich are safe. Only the rich. 
and I bring up the fact all the time, I try to repeat it a lot so that you guys know it, but studies show anywhere from 32,000 to 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have access to basic care, whereas in other developed countries, that's not a thing. Medical bankruptcy is one of the top causes of bankruptcy in this country. That's not a thing in other developed countries. We're getting screwed, man. You need to know it. You need to know how broken our system is. And again, people don't talk, media doesn't talk about it. So you come here for the truth, but the truth is ugly. We need to fight back. We need to fix this. This should be a national scandal. But instead, they'll talk about Michael Cohen's testimony, which is a story we covered it a few times, too. Don't get me wrong. We did some segments on it. But still, this is just as important, and it's going to get ignored, and it's maddening because we got to fix this. This is unsustainable. At least it's unsustainable if you give a shit about your fellow Americans. All right, Elizabeth Warren. We're going to talk about her. Unfortunately, it's not a positive story again. I want to give her positive coverage, but she's been shoving her foot in her mouth. So Elizabeth Warren has been trying to kind of distinguish herself from other um, candidates in the Democratic primary. And she, to her credit, largely it's been based on policy, how she's trying to, oh, I'm different from everybody else. So one of the things she did was the wealth tax that we spoke about. 2% wealth tax on all wealth above, I think, $50 million, which would raise a tremendous amount of money. And by the way, even a majority of Republicans support that idea. There's something about when you mention the lower percentage, like, oh, it's 2%, but it's of all wealth over $50 million, not income, wealth. For some reason, when you frame it from the wealth perspective and it's a lower percentage, people are like, oh, I support that. Even Republicans support it. So that was a great idea. Then she came out with this universal child care idea, another great idea if you ask me. So she is kind of hitting heavy on the policy. However, the problems with – the problems with um, – I was going to say the reservations I have about Elizabeth Warren, but you can make a joke out of that, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> the problems I have with Elizabeth Warren are – when she speaks in detail about these ideas like Medicare for All, we covered the story, how she's not a fighter. Now, I love Elizabeth Warren because she got us the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and she fought for that, so she has fight in her. But on so many of the important issues, she's not going to fight on those issues. Now, that's not me speaking. That's her speaking. She said in the interview with Jen Uger of TYT when it comes to Medicare for All, oh, we're all working towards the same thing in the Democratic Party. You have some people who want Medicare at 55, some people who want Medicare at 60, some people who want public option. And she basically made it seem like all these are on the same plane. Like, oh, they're all, we're all getting to the same place. But no, you're not. All the Democrats who are for Medicare 55, so on and so forth, they're gaslighting everybody. Because they're saying, I don't want Medicare for all. In order to get Medicare for all, you need a politician who believes in it and who is going to fight for it and take on Republicans, corporate Democrats, and the entire health insurance industry. If you're doing the rah-rah, kumbaya talking points, you're not going to get there because you're going to think everybody's working with you when in reality they're working against you. So that's why I was like, hey, come on, Liz, what are you doing? Now, she does this new policy thing, again, trying to take herself and say, I'm above the rest of the Democratic uh, primary crowd. She says, okay, I'm going a step further on money in politics. I'm not going to go to any fundraisers, not going to have any phone calls with wealthy donors at all. 
So no, no corporate PAC money, no big money bundling fundraisers, which, by the way, is awesome. And Bernie doesn't do big money uh, bundlers, but other candidates who said, I'm not taking corporate PAC money, are still doing big money bundlers like Kirsten Jellobrand. Um, by the way, people have been coming after me for giving nicknames. Bro, I'm having fun. Lay off me. All right? I enjoy it. I'm enjoying it. Even if none of you enjoy it, I fucking enjoy it. I'm having fun over here. People go, oh, they don't, people aren't going to take you as seriously. I've been doing fart noises at, on the, a regular basis on this show for five years. <laughs> Kyle Out of Context has existed for a long time. I've always been kind of like a political commentator and edgy and not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be fucking Anderson Cooper. You know, I don't, it's, it was just weird to me that I was reading these comments like, stop doing the nicknames. Why? I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I'm having fun. Anyway, I digress. So she says, no more big money bundling fundraisers. Great. No more phone calls with wealthy donors. Great. No corporate PACs. Wonderful. But then she goes on TYT to talk about this, and she says this. Does this only apply in the primaries, or will you carry this over to the general election or any other election you'll have going forward? So this is for primaries. Look, I do not believe in unilateral disarmament. We need to win. We need to win in 2020. And when we hit 2020... And we're in a race against Donald Trump when we're in a race for control of the Senate and control of the House and in control of the state houses and the governor's mansion. And all of those, the Republicans are going to be bringing a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of dark money, a lot of super PACs all to the fight. We play by the same rules. And in that one, I say we've got to be all in because we have to beat the Republicans. Basically the worst possible answer you could give. Listen, when you say in the primary, no more corporate PAC money, no more big money fundraisers, no more phone calls with wealthy donors. When you say that in the primary, what you're doing is you're buying into the logic of that's corrupting. That's what that is. That's corrupting. And that's why I'm going to stop it. Because it corrupts what I'm for and what we're fighting for and our policy goals. So if you're buying into that logic for the primary, you don't get to abandon that logic in the general. And say, well, now I don't want to do unilateral disarmament. Okay, but then what you're saying is, the corruption's okay in the general, but it just wasn't okay in the primary. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And what, these, what people are still struggling to understand is this. If you say no um, fundraisers, no big money bundling fundraisers, no phone calls with wealthy donors, no corporate PAC money, I'm only going to raise in small dollar donations. If you take that stance and you scream it through a megaphone through your entire campaign, it's not a guarantee you're going to make up the difference with small dollar donors. But you will raise, you'll be in the ballpark of the money you would have raised from big donors with just small dollar donations. Why? Because people hear that message and they go, oh, so they're not corrupt and they are going to fight for me, so now it's time for me to step up and give 5 bucks, 10 bucks, 30 bucks, whatever it may be. So... It's not a guarantee you're going to eclipse the amount of money you would have made or match the amount of money you made if you're taking money from uh, big donors. But that your message is much more potent, and it resonates much more, and you'll be in the ballpark of the amount of money you would have raised. And then if you keep repeating that, that's such a popular position that people will want to vote for you more. But what you do is you just undermine your entire philosophy here and your entire argument you were making about the primary. 
Oh, it's corrupting. That's why I'm not going to take it. In the general, though, I'm going to take it. Come on. you got to be better than that. It was like she's shoving her foot in her mouth. Like she had this. If she just didn't say anything about this, she wouldn't have gotten a round of negative press. But now she said this, and now it's a round of negative press from all the left-wing outlets, and rightfully so. So she, uh, she, she stumbles quite a bit, man. And by the way, reports are out recently that Bet on My Stork wants to run. And um, if, he, if he runs, I guarantee you he's going to flame out so quickly. He's going to shove his foot in his mouth way more than even Elizabeth Warren is doing here. So I look forward to that. But anyway, um, all you had to do was say, I'm sticking by that in the general too. And then you would have even had an argument that you can try to make above and beyond Bernie. You could have made an argument above and beyond. Well, actually, Bernie doesn't take, do big money bundling fundraisers. But, you know, I don't know. You, he, she could have taken an angle like, well, Bernie's taking PAC money. I don't take any PAC money. But, of course, the PACs Bernie takes from are union PACs, which are – there are not too many negative effects from that because it just makes you more pro-worker. Um, but it's still a PAC. So she could have found an angle where it's like, no, I'm leftier than Bernie. But she didn't do that. She, in fact, she made it worse because she said, I'm going to stop the corruption in the primary. But in the general, let's do the corruption all day long. Oh, what is she thinking? The the – Oh, my God, Republicans exist. Therefore, let's violate all of our principles argument. That doesn't work. It doesn't work, and it's also dumb, so you fucked up. All right, and the final story of the day is about Nikki Haley. And then when I get off air, I'm going to have to permanently numb my throat because it fucking hurts. <laughs> the nights are always worse, though. It's the nights in the morning. You guys know this. When you're sick, the nights and the mornings, it's like that's when your throat hurts the most. That's when you feel most like shit. But, yeah. Anyway. Um, all right. Nikki Haley. Let me set this up. So here's a genuinely scary story that shows you how broken our system is. This is from CNBC. Boeing nominates former Trump U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley to the board. Nikki Haley served as ambassador to the U.N. under President Donald Trump from January 2017 until December. Quote, it's an honor to have the opportunity to contribute to Boeing's continued success as a cutting-edge industry leader and a great American company, Haley says in a statement. Boeing Chairman and CEO Dennis Mullenberg says Haley uh, brings to Boeing an outstanding record of achievement. So Trump's UN, UN ambassador, the person who's responsible for diplomacy with the world, is going to work for a weapons manufacturer. Call me a radical. Not sure that should be allowed. <laughs> this is like when politicians vote on Wall Street issues, like, I support deregulation of Wall Street. And then they go and they work for fucking Goldman Sachs, or they go and work for some hedge fund, and they get pa 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 paid, bitch. That's what this reminds me of. Uh, me? I am not being corrupt and voting in a way that's going to get me paid when I leave here. I'm not doing that at all. Anyway, let's deregulate um, all the Wall Street banks in sight. And, okay, now I'm stepping down, and all you need to bid for me. Somebody pay me $2 million a year to sit on my ass. 
it, this is insanity. So um, apparently Nikki Haley is quoting $200,000 for domestic speaking engagements. What's, what, what's Obama? Is Obama 400000 600000 something like that? I, I forget. The first time Obama was in the news after being president was going to Wall Street to give speeches for hundreds of thousands of dollars a pop, very similar to Hillary Clinton. But uh, Nikki Haley apparently isn't worth as much as them, but $200,000 a pop for domestic speaking engagements. Um, Haley is one of many Trump officials who passed through his cabinet and right into the private sector. Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, he's had like four or five Goldman Sachs people in his administration, including um, Michael Cohn, who took, uh, Michael Cohn? No, Gary Cohn. Gary Cohn. I'm getting Michael Cohen and Gary Cohn mixed up, but um, he actually took an exit bonus, millions and millions of dollars, got in there, pushed for Goldman Sachs interest with that tax bill, and then got the fuck out. Um, And get this, shares of Boeing are up more than 200% since Trump's election in November 2016. And so there's a, the S&P 500 has only been up 30.6%. So in other words, they're up way more than what the average is. And the reason why is he pushed this massive increase in military spending, military spending that was all already bloated and unnecessary. He did a massive increase, and it's just corporate welfare all day long to all the um, defense contractors. And by the way, Nikki Haley, when she was uh, governor of South Carolina, worked with Boeing back then too. So you do favors for Boeing when you're um, South Carolina governor. When you're U.N. ambassador, you're incredibly hawkish all around the globe, which does massive favors for Boeing and gets them paid even more. Um, And again, Trump's military escalation bill, his uh, military budget was through the fucking roof. So in every way imaginable, she does policy that helps Boeing, and then boom, she's no longer um, U.N. ambassador, and she gets hired by Boeing immediately. Warmongering is profitable. I need everybody to go back, look up Dwight Eisenhower, Military Industrial Complex. Type that into YouTube. And then watch that, and your jaw will hit the fucking ground. Because Dwight Eisenhower warned about all this. That war can become very profitable. And when war becomes profitable, you're going to have nefarious people pushing to continue war around the world because they will continue to get rich off of war. Smedley Butler, War is a Racket. Check that out as well. But but definitely go to YouTube. Type in... um, Dwight Eisenhower, military-industrial complex. Watch that, and your jaw will hit the ground, because he's warning about all this. He's warning about everything that's happening right now. So, And by the way, stop and think about it. We say we, we're the world police and we care about human rights. We arm 73% of the world's dictatorships. We arm rebel groups like in Yemen, like in Syria. We arm Saudi Arabia. We arm Israel. Human rights violating regimes like crazy. If you really wanted to cut back on the violence around the world, just stop arming nefarious actors. And immediately you'd see a giant cut overnight. But we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Money, military-industrial complex. And now we have people who push for the interests of those defense contractors all along are now getting paid by them. I genuinely don't know how these people sleep at night. I don't. I really don't know. I don't know. Because I wouldn't be able to sleep because of all the harm and damage you caused around the world. I know they rationalize it by saying I'm just a cog in a machine and I'm one person. I can't change that much. But at first, do no harm, right? Like the, old, like the doctor is saying. And if you're, if you're Nikki Haley, look at how much harm you're doing. So this is disgusting. It's shameful. It shouldn't even be allowed.
shouldn't be allowed. This revolving door of power and influence, I mean, it perpetuates everything that's happening in our country that's wrong and bad and terrible. Okay. All right. <clears throat> that's the show, bitches. Send me some love. I'm gonna, i got to try to nurse myself back to health. But anyway, love you guys. I'll talk to you soon, um, and enjoy your, what day is today? Today is Thursday. Well, enjoy uh, your Friday and your weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday, everybody. Much love. Peace.